Turn your Bibles to 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. Do not love the things, do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. The world is passing away, and also its lusts, but the one who does the will of God lives forever. Father, we come once again now to your word, and we plead that um, the thoughts of our heart, that the words that come from my mouth might be a sweet sound in your ear, Lord. That as we look and see and behold your wondrous love for us, that we might reciprocate that love back to you, that we might be ever changed by this word that is living and breathing and sharp, sharper than any two-edged sword and not just sharp but used by the Holy Spirit to cut just perfectly and we ask for that this morning that it might divide in our hearts that which is the love of the world and that which is the love of the Father. We ask now, Lord, for our time of study that it might be pleasing to you and you might teach us. In Jesus' precious name we pray, amen. We have a text this morning that really begs us to understand the meaning of words. And words have different meanings. You can say one word and some might come from a different understanding of it than you have in your own mind, or it can be used in different contexts. If you look at our text this morning, we have the word world, and it's used many times. And when we use that word, word, word world, we need to understand what John is meaning when he says this. As I studied this passage, I came up with four different meanings that I could think of, at least that is noted in Scripture, of what this world word world would mean one instance would it, it would mean that it it means the created thing such as the trees the flowers people world is also used in scripture to describe a universal system not just plants flowers people trees but but the planets space earth, the moon, it's this entire universe. World is also used in scripture to describe a system of thinking that is ruled by Satan in opposition to and hated by God. Now people are created things, but we that do not know God run by that system of thinking that's ruled by Satan it's in opposition to God and it's hated by God. But then the fourth use of world in scripture is a world as a system of thinking that is ruled by Satan in opposition to God and yet it's loved by God. 
And this, we've got to take with an understanding of what this world, word world means to Scripture. This morning, especially as we look at 15 through 17. If you look in the Greek lexicon, Thayer's Greek lexicon, he describes world as the whole circle of earthly goods, endowments, riches, advantages, pleasures, which although hollow and frail and fleeting, stir desire, seduce from God, and are obstacles to the cause of Christ. J.C. Ryle said, when I speak of the word world, I mean those people who think chiefly of this world's things and neglect the world to come, the people who are always thinking more of earth than of heaven, more of time than of eternity, more of body than the soul, more of pleasing man than of pleasing God. And we say that all the time, don't we? This world is not my home, I'm bound for a better place. But then we also sing of, this is my father's world. And we're meaning two different worlds, aren't we? Meaning this world is a system of thinking that is opposed to God, that is interested in the pleasures and delights of sin, is not ours, but we're bound for a better place. And yet when we sing, this is my father's world, we're singing about his creation. The fact that he has put his mark upon all of this world as he has created it. And it is to be here for his glory. If we ever would have any doubt about a Christian's relationship with this world in terms of its earthly pleasures, let's set our doubt aside by looking at the scriptures. The truth of scripture would say, do not be conformed any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Romans 12, 2. We have not received the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God. 1 Corinthians 2, 12. Christ gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age or the present evil world, Galatians 1.4. You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world, Ephesians 2, 1 and 2. Demas, because he loved this world, has deserted me. Not speaking of Demas loving creation, but meaning the world's system and that is in opposition to God. 2 Timothy 4.10. James 4.4. Don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred toward God? Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Matthew 13.22. The one who received the seed that fell among the thorns is the man who hears the word, but the worries of this life or the worries, the cares, the pleasures of this world and the deceitfulness of wealth choke it, making it unfruitful. See, the Apostle John knows he's speaking to two, two groups of people. His first group is the believer. And every believer must be continually reminded to not love the world because there's that streak in us, that sin desire that we fight against, that though in God's eyes we are justified in his sight, we are being sanctified every day by the word of truth and we have to continually cast off that love of the world. And John knows this and exhorts the believer to not love the things of the world. But then there's a second group he looks at and warns as well. And this would be that he knows, John knows that there are people sitting in church just like there are people sitting just in this church that firmly believe that they are believers in Jesus Christ but they are not because they love the world more than Christ. And it says, and we will look in this morning, that the love of the Father is not in him. The Apostle John knows that and he speaks to a, that section of people this morning and warns them, do not love the world. 
And he doesn't warn us to not love the world just in that little framework, but he warns us because he's spent the first two chapters up until this point exhorting us, love God, love God, love God, because he loves you so much. And he's now telling us, you're to, in order to love God in the way he calls us to, you cannot do that if there is love of the world in us. And then he goes and depicts for us the three, three ways, at least in summation, that we tend to love the world. The lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. The, love, the word love here is agape, and it denotes to take pleasure in the thing, prize it above other things, be unwilling to abandon it or do without it, to welcome with desire, to long for, an agape love. Meaning love is not a bad thing. Love is made by God and is a delightful thing and commands us to love. In fact, he commands us to love the world but not the world's system. We're commanded to be in the world and yet not of it. But what he denotes here is this love cannot be above that which is for the Father. Lust of the flesh. Let's look at this first of three things. Lust of the flesh. James 1.14 says, But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. John is writing to the fact that we have desires within us. We have desires that are good. We have desires that are to sin, that are bad. And that's what he speaks of, this lust of the flesh, this, that which is coming from within me. The International Standard Bible Encyclopedia describes lust as, this word lust, meaning it's used most frequently as a means for the unlawful concupiscence, desire, lust, that which is wrong. The following references hold the idea not only of sinful desire known as fleshly or worldly as opposed to spiritual, heavenly, the will of man as opposed to the will of God, but also the sensual desire connected with adultery and fornication. And for us in 2015, the lust of the flesh, the largest temptation for us in that area, is the lust of the flesh in a sensual nature. The culture of America, the culture of the Western world, the culture of the the world in its entirety, this universe, is one that is as comfortable as it's ever been maybe in the entire history of the world with sexuality in all areas of life. As Christians, we we are very used to and maybe even comfortable in the sense of we're accustomed to seeing this all around us, all the time, billboards, advertisements. And as Christians, we even make jokes with sexual connotations. Well, I know I don't do that. When's the last time you, you spoke in a way that sounded homosexual? You're mocking sin and making it sound funny rather than showing what it truly is. We, we do it all the time. We're very accustomed to it. The magazine rack at the local checkout stand doesn't even surprise half the time anymore. It's just common. Many of you probably are well aware of the NSPW. That's the national sport of people watching. 
And I really like that sport. I do it all the time. And I've actually come to like the extreme version of that sport where I watch people watch other people. And if you do that, you can really learn a lot about what people find to light in. I find myself, when I go to the grocery store to help myself not look at the things I shouldn't be looking at, is to watch other men. Because then I get a great understanding of, you know, people are watching me. And if I am looking at the things I should not be looking at, what does that say about me? What does that say about that which I delight when I know no one else in that store knows me for who, really, for who I really am or who I really claim to be? Hebrews 13.4 says, Marriage is to be held in honor among all and the marriage bed is to be undefiled. For fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. And we often think of that as being adultery, physical adultery, that we're not to defile the marriage bed in, with physical adultery. And yet, if you really believe that, ask any young man or young woman in a young marriage or is engaged or is in the pursuit of engagement who has struggled and lost with battles against pornography or other moral vices or maybe even just has spent an abundance of time allowing their mind to be entertained by the world's entertainment and now has to clear an immense baggage of untruth from their minds. That immense baggage of untruth that is piled high on the marriage bed that they may think doesn't need to be cleared off because he or she, the other person in the relationship, doesn't know what they've struggled with. And yet if you physically asked anyone to sleep on top of a bed that was packed full of 100-pound suitcases, they wouldn't know what was in those suitcases, but they could tell you very clearly that this is not right and this is uncomfortable and something doesn't seem to be in order here. You see, we defile in this world all the time, the marriage bed, by what we think about and what we look at. That which we desire, the lust of the flesh. And we've even carried it so far that if we are to say, you know, I have a desire that is ungodly, but this is the way I was made. And you can't tell me otherwise. I'm made this way. I feel this way. And yes, I know scripture says that that's not how I'm supposed to feel or desire, but this is the way I'm made. That if we are to even say, no, that's not the way you were made, we're looked down upon and even some of the Christian church would say, no, you can't say that to the person. That's judging them. That's not loving them. That's hating them. And yet as Christians, the scriptures would say, John 3, you can be born again. The first birth didn't go well, but the second one has transformative power that can take us in our sinful fleshly nature and give us a new life in Christ. Ephesians 5, 3 through 12, flip over there with me. It's a long verse. I want you to look, with, look at it with me as I read through it. Ephesians 5. Ephesians 5, 3 through 12. 
Follow along with me as I read. Therefore, be imitators of God. I'm starting with verse 1. As beloved children, and walk in love just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for you as an offering and sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. Just as John is exhorting us to love God first, Paul does the same thing. But then just like John in 1 John 2 in our study this morning is telling us what we have to got, what we got to get rid of in order to be able to love God properly, Paul does the same thing starting in verse 3. But immorality or any impurity or greed must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. And there must be no filthiness and silly talk or coarse jesting which are not fitting but rather giving of thanks. For this you know with certainty that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore do not be partakers with them. For you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of the light consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth. Trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. Do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness. But instead even expose them. For it is, it is disgraceful even to speak of things which are done by them in secret. But all these things become visible when they are exposed by the light. For everything that becomes visible is light. In this world that is so accustomed and comfortable with sensual things and even in the Christian community we are to not even speak of these things they are not to be named among us and yet they are desires of the flesh and we are prone toward them number two go back with me to first John 2 number two lust of the flesh number two lust of the eyes If the first one was that which was within me, the second one is that which is the beauty of the world that is around me, that which we can see visibly with our eyes. And since the the first man and woman, Adam and Eve, we are prone to be tempted by that which we can see. They saw the fruit, it looked good, they took it. And the largest temptation here in 2015 for us as believers is that which is found on the internet and the television set. That's not to say that there's not other temptations in our eyes, not so. We see those things all the time, but this would be the largest temptation, I believe. Let me just speak clearly here that I'm not saying that the world, the the media that is available to us is wrong in the sense of the fact that it's just media. I'm saying that that media of the world is promoting the world's message. Therefore, if you or me or us choose to engage in the world's entertainment of TV and movies and the internet, the question before us is how are we going to keep the message of the world and all its innuendos, sexuality, violence, mockery of truth, and that which is right, the sin and vice of the world lifted up in humor and pleasure, the lauding of the superficial and short-lived pleasures of life as good, right, and natural, how are we going to keep all that from dulling our spiritual senses to what is true and keeping 
us from dwelling on the world system of thinking. And we may have to come to the conclusion that we're really going to have to change some of the things we're doing in terms of how we are viewing this internet, TV, movies, in order to be able to not let that dull our spiritual senses. Can it be done? Sure. My children and I had a delightful time a couple weeks ago watching the masters on the internet. All it was is golf. They all spoke quietly. They were all dressed appropriately. It was a very gentlemanly thing and there was absolutely no commercials. It was wonderful. And my children learned about what it means to practice hard, achieve excellence. They learned about how to honor others, play by the rules of the game. It's delightful. I'm not saying it's wrong, but I am saying that it's a, it's a small percentage of that which is out there. And if we're taking the full dose of it, you will dull your spiritual senses. And you can sit there and say, no, I won't. But you do dull your spiritual senses. You cannot keep from dulling your spiritual senses. And you may be resisting it and not wanting it, but it does become a dullness of your spiritual senses because you are surrounding yourself that, with that which is very creatively and craftily seeking to get past your spiritual senses and appeal to the lust of your eyes and the lust of your flesh. They do it so, so well. In his book, Worldly Amusements, Pastor Wayne Wilson describes worldly entertainment as that which does at least one or both of the following. He gives two definitions. One, it promotes an evil message. It presents evil as good. This can be done by celebrating sin, such as lying, stealing, fornication, or adultery. Sin is presented in an attractive way. That's one worldly entertainment. His second is this. It uses an evil method. If the first is an evil message, the second is an evil method. Regardless of the point of the story, the performers are made to behave in ways that are shameless and immoral. A story may lead to the conclusion that adultery is bad, but if we must wallow through a sea of flesh to reach this conclusion, the work qualifies as worldly. No matter how excellent the production or acting is, no matter how true the moral of the story, if something promotes an evil message or uses an evil method, the discerning Christian will avoid it. Why? Romans thirteen fourteen. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regards to its lusts. Psalm 101.3, I, I will set before my eyes no vile thing. The deeds of faithless men I hate, they will not cling to me. 1 Thessalonians 5.21-22, test everything. Hold to that which is good. Avoid every kind of evil. 1 Corinthians 15.33, do not be misled. Bad company corrupts good character. Or another translation would say, translation would say bad company corrupts good morals. Galatians 6, 7 through 9, do not be deceived, God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. The one who sows to please his sinful nature, from that nature will reap destruction. The one who sows to please the Spirit, from the Spirit will reap eternal life. Let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. If we sow to the things of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, that's what we have to spend our time reaping. If we sow to that which is pleasing to God, we, in our pursuit of holiness, that's what we then spend our time reaping. 
But the, the crux of the matter is you can't just sow and not reap. You can't spend your time sowing and then go away and reap something else. You sow what you plant. If you plant a tomato bush, you're going to reap tomatoes. If you don't want to reap tomatoes, don't plant a tomato bush. You've got going to reap what you spend your time sowing. And you could spend three months out of the year reaping or sowing something and then, and then think falsely that now I can spend the rest of my time reaping something differently. No, what you sowed is what you will reap. Well, I, I'm, I'm not looking at anything bad. The film I watched doesn't have any sexual content in it. It had a few words. It took God's name in vain a few times, but it wasn't near as bad as it could be. And this is, this is an area I have come probably in the last couple of years under the most conviction in, that I would watch something that takes God's name in vain, and by God's grace, he gave me a wife that is very sensitive to that. We could be watching the most scriptural, spiritually wonderful, God-glorifying movie in the world, and if it takes God's name in vain, she cannot watch another second and ask for it to be turned off. Because the language of the world seeks to belittle God or it makes sin trivial or funny, or it mocks God's design of the body. We cannot play trivial with these things. Not at all. They may not, you take God's name in vain, but the swear words of the world belittle God's creation. And or it takes sin and makes it funny or trivial, or it takes God's design of the body in a sensual way that is beautiful in the way God has made it, and it mocks it. Thomas Watson, Bearden said, a godly man will not go as far as he may, lest he go further than he should. If you want to have more to read on this subject, we have a paper on our website called uh, Convictions and Conscience, and in there there's some biblical guidelines for evaluating the exercise of our personal convictions. And it's got some great things to read up on and I would recommend it. First is the lust of the flesh, second lust of the eyes, the third is the boastful pride of life, the pride of life. And typically when we think of pride, we're thinking of this high-mindedness. Look at me, how wonderful I am. But in this sense of the word here in 1 John 2, it's actually speaking to a vain glory or a mind that's being set on the stuff of the world and the praise of the world, meaning they want to have that which the world delights in in order for the world to say, yes, you are popular. Yes, you have the latest and greatest. Yes, you are relevant. Thayer's Greek lexicon again. An ungodly, sinful, and empty pre- presumption an ungodly, sinful, and empty presumption which trusts in the stability of earthly things. The pride of life. It's these things that we have to have in order to make us happy. That new outfit for the upcoming occasion. That, that piece of furniture that we have to have to be happy with the house that we're currently in. The new computer, the game, the latest tablet, the phone, that piece of machinery, that new car, that diet, that if we don't get because the world says that we must have, we won't be happy. That's what John is speaking to us about, this boastful pride of life. If you want to read uh, an article, and I'm not going to read 
anything but a small paragraph this morning, but I would encourage you to go look up this article. And you're taking notes, mark it down. The dogma of advertising and consumerism. The dogma of advertising and consumerism by Zayad Abu Saeed. I probably really butchered his name, so I'm going to spell it. Z-I-A-D-A-B-U-S-A-U-D. I don't believe he's a believer, but he wrote a fascinating article. And this is what he says. The values being presented to a nation through major advertising come in all shapes and sizes. Constant images of happy, smiling, healthy people with viable products both insist on a materialistic existence and promotes the idea that if you want fulfillment, you need to buy things. As a result, our worth is valued more and more by what we own as opposed to what we do or who we are. He's got it. He's very right. Now, that's the system of the world that we're in. It matters less really who you are or what you do, but really what you have. And if we simply took a, a look at the popularity of, of cooking or home improvement shows, one would recognize by these programs it is to cause the viewer to be dissatisfied by their current home or menu. And I'm not decrying that. I, I like these shows. I've watched them at time to time with my wife, the cooking or home improvement shows. But what I am saying is that if we become dissatisfied and unhappy with what God has given us because we don't have French doors or white cabinets or homemade bruschetta or smoked salmon, then we need to take appropriate action. We're tempted by this pride of life, these desires to have things. And the more you have, the more you have to spend time taking care of your things and the less time you have for the love of the Father. Well, this, this trend asks the question, can we love the world and the Father? Well, it says here in verse 16, or excuse me, verse 15, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Does that mean that we do not love the Father and instead love the world? Or does that mean that God does not love us? And it's both. If you're of the two parties, as I said at the beginning, that John is speaking to. If you're of the party that believes you're a Christian and you're not, then, then yes, you can love the world and the Father does not love you. But we must also understand that the Apostle John is speaking to those who think they are Christians and they're not. But he's also speaking to the fact He's also speaking to Christians. And in that sense, those who are true believers, they can love the world and the Father. Now the mark of a believer is that he loves Christ more and more and more and the world less and less and less. Peter denied Christ three times and yet he affirmed his love for him three times. How could that be? How could both be there? Why not love the world? Why should we not love the world's pleasures? He gives three points. Look with me. First, in verse 16, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life, is not from the Father. Why not love the world? Number one, it's not from the Father. 
The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life is the inroads, are the inroads the enemy will use to develop a love for the world. You know, the enemy, Satan, studies the human heart and he knows the truth. That those who love the world cannot have the love of the Father in them. Because even as believers, if our love for the world is greater than our love for God, it drowns out our ability to love God as we ought. We, we are true believers. We will go to heaven. He loves us. And yet we are unable in our sin at that time to love God as we ought. Satan knows that. And he will take the time needed to work his vicious evil plan. The power of the temptation is in the timing. Unless we are about loving the Father and sowing seeds of holiness, we will be kept busy reaping the harvest of the only other seeds that can be sown, love the world. Satan knows that. So he's going to tempt us as believers to love the things of the world, knowing it's not from the Father, and knowing it's going to keep us busy from doing what we're called to do. Why is it not from the Father? Because his love is, is so much different. God's love for us is all or nothing. He doesn't sort of, lay, sort of love us and, and at times is not. It's, it's all or nothing. He sent his son to lay down his life for not just me and not just you, but all that are his. And yet we so often fail to realize that what he asks for in return is a wholehearted devotion and love for him. If there was ever anyone, have you ever thought about this? If there was ever anyone or anything that truly deserved unbridled, unconditional, all-consuming devotion and love, it would be Jesus Christ. Because he's the only one who, who not only laid down his life for me, he laid down it for every one that he will save. Everyone. Our love is so much different, isn't it? It's so normal for us to love something and love something else at the same time, to have multiple loves. You know, men that are, are women that are caught in adulterous affairs, oftentimes they will say, I really, I really do love her. I really do love him. And yet, they're having an affair. Or the man or the woman who says, I really do love you, and yet they found to be loving pornography. But Christ calls us to love him alone to the point that all other love appears as hate in comparison, because that's his love for us, and that's what we are to emulate. And yet, when we once saved have the love of the Father, listen to this, we will never ever be able to to cast off his love for us. For us who so easily change our loves from one thing to the next, this is entirely incomprehensible. His grace will continue to draw us ever toward him as a loving Heavenly Father. His mercies are new every morning. How great is his faithfulness. It is unfathomable once bought at the highest price possible that his love that we are called to remember, that love that draws us in repentance from our sin, drenched pigsty, and back into the loving arms of the Father. That's why we have the picture there of the prodigal son. Because we never deserve to be loved, and yet his love never wanes for those that are his, ever. And it's new every morning. And it's new every morning. 
and so great is his faithfulness. And it's when we remember that, that we are called to repent and we then run back to his arms, not knowing why. Why, why should he? It doesn't, it doesn't make any sense why he should love me for what I've been doing. And yet he does. Why not love the world? Because it's not from the Father. Number two, we see there in verse 17, the world is passing away. It's passing away and there's something better. You know, why do we sin? Why do we give in to these lusts? Because we, we hope and believe falsely for a short period of time that that pleasure that we're going to gain from that is going to last. It's going to give us what we really want, a lasting, pleasurable thing. And we fulfill that desire that is right in something other than God. And we fulfill it in something that is passing away. But in Christ, we have that which satisfies. And it's not just for a short time, it's for a long time. And it's really a test of faith. Do we believe that I can have more physical pleasure in doing that which God calls me to do over here than in the world's version of sensual pleasure? It's really the question. It's a question of faith. And the answer is to the affirmative every time. Yes. You know, go, go, go work the soup kitchen. Go stand before the abortion mill. Go help a friend. Go mow a lawn. Go provide a Go do something in love for someone else as Bob gave us as a homework assignment today in First Light. Go do something for someone outside of your family and come home and sit there and just... Take note, take thought of how you feel. It's pleasurable. You're thinking, there's just, there's just warm delight. I did something that is completely outside of my nature other than Christ's grace in me. And wow, what amazing grace it is that he's given me to do this. This is, this is wonderful. Finding our fulfillment in this world and not in Christ is throwing good money after bad. It's putting stock in a dying company. It's going back to the restaurant where we have gotten food poisoning every single time we went. It's going right back to the, the dog that returns to his vomit. That's, that's what it is. Loving the world is, is putting our hope in something that's just passing away. Number three, a better hope. A third reason to not love the world is there's a better hope. We are called here to love God more than the pleasure of this world, not because of the pleasures of this world are better and we have to buckle down and just obey God and thereby get something that is really second rate. No, not at all. We have a better hope. We have something far better, something, something far more pleasurable because of the love of God for us. Have you ever thought about this? We love to quote John 3.16, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. What about, what about if that verse read this? For God so loved the world that whosoever believeth in him and never sins again will never perish but have everlasting life. It's not upon our basis of work from here going forward or ever. But it's upon the fact that Christ died was our substitutionary payment for our sin. And that blood of Christ covered all of our sin, past, present, future. And we have that, hope, we have that better hope. 
not just for eternity, which is the great hope, eternal life in, with God forever, but secondarily that we have, the, we have the continual hope and not just hope but truth that as we do that which honors God and shows our love for him, there is the pleasure and delight of this, of this world, not in the sense of the world of sin, but of the world the way God has made it. God the Father knew that even in sending his son to die in our place, that would not be enough to keep us from sinning. Because that's how it's always been in the, in the course of history of his people. He gave the garden to Adam and Eve, the, the perfect place, and even walked with them, and it wasn't enough to keep them from sinning. He saved eight people from a worldwide destructive flood, and yet that wasn't enough. He brought them out of Egypt and parted seas and brought forth water from rocks in a desert and food rained down from heaven and that wasn't enough to keep them from sinning because there's never been anything that would keep us from sinning and yet God knew that and he loved us anyway and he sent his son to die for us and he loves us each and every moment of the day as if we had never sinned. How do you under, how do we grasp that? We can't. We believe it on faith. There is something so much better than the pleasures and passions and love of the world. It's the love of the Father for us. And because of that love for us, we have a love. We can have a love for him. But the one who does the will of the of God lives forever. Calvin said basically that the love of those who do the will of God abide, meaning that they, they exist with God in a pleasurable state that is unable to be given by the world. It is something that which is, that which is so much better. In closing, what do we do here As a, as a, if, you, if you believe today that you are a Christian and yet if you are to take stock of your life you see no real desire for Christ. You go enjoy the pleasures of the world and there's really little to no conviction at all over that which you did. In fact, you have no qualms in going to it again. You use the language of the world. It doesn't bother you a bit. I would exhort you and plead with you to look to the scriptures and test yourself that you may be found in him. Affirm that you have Christ or do not. Test yourself by the scriptures to determine if you have Christ. Because you may think you do, but he does not have you. If you are a believer, what are we to do? This quote, I think, says it well by John Baird. I'm not sure if he's related to the Baird family or not. But this is pretty good, but I'd claim it as your family tree. My complaint, my complaint is not that I am in the world, but that the world is in me. I cannot get it out of my heart except as I let you in. That's really good, isn't it? The only way is through Christ. And as a believer, if you want a less love of the world and more love of the Father, you must love the Father more because then it drowns out and removes 
you can't have it in the, the existence. Calvin said that the heart of man is narrow. It, it, it's small. It cannot, it cannot hold two loves. You either have the love of the world or you have the love of the Father. And how do you get rid of the love of the world? You gain the love of the Father. You go to Scripture. You look at the, at the Gospel. You recall His love for you. And as you receive that and respond to that, as you fight with His grace... And you may have to fight really hard because as believers, we can set up strongholds of this, of this love of the world that just sinks deep within our very soul and crevices of our body. And we have to rid that. And that takes a period of time and you struggle and fight against it. But if that is there, rejoice in the grace of God and use it and fight well. Because in his power, when we are weak, he is strong. And he gives us that ability to, to rid ourselves of that love by loving him more. I cannot get it out of my heart except as I let you in. We've got we've to respond in faith as believers here. And realize that that world that so, is so pleasurable, so desirable, falls so short when it comes to God's love for us and what we gain through that love for him. Let's close in prayer. Father in heaven, we we're left here looking at this passage and humbled as we see our sin as we see the, the depth of our depravity, that our hearts are deceitfully wicked, and we, we don't even know how deep it's, it is, how deceitful it is. And yet we're also, Father, in this passage, left with the awe of your love for us, and we simply plead, Father, as believers in Christ to, for more grace, to love you more and love the world less. To have the, the discipline and the fortitude of believing the truth and not the lie as we daily have the opportunity to indulge in the lust of our flesh and indulge in the lust of our eyes and indulge in the pride of life. May we be noted, Father, as believers for less and less giving in to those things and more and more loving you. Father, I, I pray that if there is anyone in the sound of my voice that claims Christ and yet by their actions and their love and their devotion and in their heart they love the things of the world more in that case not at all the things of God I ask Father that you might bring upon them the weight of their soul, eternal soul, and where it will dwell. I ask, Father, that you would bring upon them the weight, an unbearable weight of your love for us that only Christ could bear. 
Father, I pray that you would open their eyes to see that even though they love the world, that they will but come in repentance and respond to your work in their heart, they can have that love removed and, and replaced with a new birth, having it replaced with a love of God because you first loved us and sent your son to be the appreciation of our sins, for our sins. Father, we thank you for the study this morning and ask and pray now that you might allow us to not leave endeavoring to just do better or stop doing something. Don't allow us, Father, to give in to Colossians 2 exhortation to not just say, I'm going to not do this and not do that. But instead, Father, that we would respond with instead of not doing something, but by doing more of what we should be doing, which is loving God and the things of your world and the things of your word. And by loving the world around us, not the pleasures of it, but the the creation that is there and seeing you in it and loving your creation, the people around us that believe in the world system as their hope. And we would love them enough to show them that their hope is false and needs to be found alone in Christ. Father, we thank you so much this morning for your grace and the power of your Holy Spirit and pray and ask now, Lord, that you would continue to do a work In Jesus' precious and holy name we pray, amen.